passage we are looking at gives us insight into the way in which God wants to use the one who was sentenced to the world to die for our sins. So if you haven't already done so, you'll want to have turned to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. And the idea here is that Zechariah was a prophet who lived at the same time as Haggai. They were both ministers of God's grace at a time in which the Jews had returned from Babylon, and the Jews were responsible for rebuilding the temple walls, and they seemed to have bumped into a work shortage, stoppage. And so during the course of those 16 years or so, a sense of inertia set in. And God wants to break forth and again stir their hearts to begin to rebuild that temple, that temple that points to the one who had come in via Bethlehem to die on Calvary, where that temple would have significance for the way in which sacrifice was to be administered and ultimately resolved through Jesus Christ. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we're coming to this portion of our worship, we realize that that plan of redemption, that drama, the unfolding drama, the thread of salvation from oldest of the Testament books on through Revelation, tie everything together and find forward movement through Bethlehem until we get to that Good Friday moment where Jesus died for our sins. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to what you want to teach us this morning and help us to better explain in the midst of this Christmas season the significance of the way in which God went about not only preparing his people for Christ to come into this world, but now what God is doing among people subsequent to Christ's coming, his death, his resurrection, anticipating his return. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some might have spotted this in various newscasts and news reports over the past weeks. Roddy Edmonds is the first U.S. soldier to receive Israel's Righteous Among the Nations honor. Seventy years after he risked his life to save 200 Jews. The native of Knoxville, Tennessee, was captured in the Battle of the Bulge in late 1944, and he was held at a German POW camp. When the Nazis ordered all Jewish-American POWs to step forward on January 27th of 1945, Edmonds, the highest-ranking non-commissioned officer at the camp, ordered 1,000 U.S. soldiers to do so, regardless of their religion. They cannot all be Jews, a German commander said. We are all Jews here, Edmonds replied adding soldiers did not need to divulge their religion under the Geneva Conventions. But then the commander put a gun to Edmund's head. 
And the Nazi commander said, I'll give you one more chance. Have the Jewish men step forward, or I will shoot you on the spot. Edmund's son, Pastor Chris Edmonds, says, they said my dad paused and then went on to say, if you shoot, you'll have to shoot all of us. And the commander yielded. And Chris Edmonds believes his dad's move saved 200 lives. And Edmonds died in 1985, and his, his story was untold. But now it has resurfaced, and it's fascinating. Because sometime after his father's death, Chris Edmonds read an article about Richard Nixon's purchase of a Manhattan townhouse from a man named Lester Tanner, who mentioned that Edmonds had saved his life. And so his son, the son then, embarked on a quest to find Tanner. Edmonds was honored this month as only the fifth American to receive the Israeli honor, the century's highest for non-Jews who undertook heroic acts in World War II, and he is now being considered for a Congressional Medal of Honor. His is a story of intervention. His is a story of deliverance. His is a story of a rescue mission, which leads us to this passage we are looking at today. Because what you and I will now find in these verses are two significant works of grace that God accomplishes to rescue people from the power and the penalty of sin. In verse 1, down through verse 5, the first of these two works stands out. The number one, by his grace, our Lord defends his people. Cleansing us, you see, from sin. The stakes are high now, and it's in within a heavenly court that we find the participants. It's a vision, the fourth of eight that you'll find in these opening chapters. And now you see in verse 1 and verse 2 that there is Joshua the high priest, and he is standing there. It's a court scene. Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, is recalling the details for you and for me. It's in that 520 B.C. range, around the time in which Haggai likewise had produced his messianic promises. And the high priest is standing there, and don't overlook the irony of it all, because the temple still lays in ruins, and here is the high priest who ought to be administering work among the people within that temple in this vision that God has produced in the mindset of Zechariah Here is Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, in your Older Testament, when you see the phrase angel of the Lord, that's different than just simply the description of an angel. The word angel deals with the nature of some heavenly being. 
But the phrase, the angel of the Lord, deals with the title of the second member of the Trinity. Because angel means messenger. In other words, this is Jesus, prior to Bethlehem, involved in ministry here. The title, angel of the Lord. He's positioned here in this court next to the high priest Joshua. And in the Newer Testament times, another name for Joshua would be Jesus. Jesus, the greatest high priest, is standing next to Jesus, the high priest. We're in the courtroom. And as we find ourselves in the courtroom, lo and behold, look who's there. You're in verse 1. And there is Satan. And notice where he has positioned himself. Standing at his right hand. And I want you to notice his purpose at this point. He's there to accuse Joshua, the high priest. Pause. Because what Satan attempts to do is to masquerade and and mimic the work of the Holy Spirit. As an accuser of God's people, Satan can disguise himself, as R.C. Sproul might put it, as the Holy Spirit and bury us in a quagmire of moral confusion. He can make us feel good when we should feel guilty and make us feel guilty when we should be at peace. And what he does is he seeks to align other people who will be accusers and produce accusations against God's people. Make certain you distinguish between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusation of the evil one. Because what the accusations of the evil one will do is to pull together individuals or groups of people who will produce a spiritual confusion in the mindset of others so they are not able to function in a way that brings glory to God. He's standing there. And notice where he's positioned at this point. He's standing at the right hand. And there's a purpose here. And his purpose at this point is to accuse Joshua, the high priest. Now we're looking at this and we realize that the high priest's responsibility is to be the representative of the people before God. So in essence, what he is trying to do is to say sin is greater than grace. What the second member of the Trinity is there to do in that court is to say that grace is greater than sin. The prosecutor is Satan. The defense attorney is Jesus. Jesus understands the purpose of this situation. The temple is still in ruins. No sacrifices, no pointing towards the one who would die for our sins. Satan wants to keep it that way. Look at the various settings of Satan in the courtrooms of the heavens. There in your Older Testament, you will find Satan making accusations against Job. 
Now Job is found in the time period of the patriarchs, the book of Genesis. And what Satan is attempting to do at this point is to thwart that forward movement of testimony pertaining to Messiah still to come. He wants to be able to accuse Job before God that Job is just basically serving you because you have blessed him. Remove the blessing and you will remove the sense that he is, that he is living for you. He's in the courtrooms of the heavens. Here we find likewise Satan in the courtrooms of the heavens delivering accusations, once again, against a very strategic person in that time period who had been ordained by God to minister in the temple aspects, but here the temple is in ruins, and the fear is the temple will be rebuilt, and therefore sacrifices will point towards the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Connect the dots. Because there's a third time we are given a glimpse of what Satan's attempting to do in the heavenly courtroom because Jesus Christ himself will will tell Peter in Luke chapter 2, verse 31, that Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And when does Jesus inform Peter of this? As Jesus is gaining traction towards moving towards what? The temple in Jerusalem. Connect the dots. And what the accuser is attempting to do at this point is to confuse the mindset of the believer as well as to frustrate the plans of the sovereign God regarding the finished work of Jesus on their cross by substituting spiritual conviction with spiritual accusation. And he produces a sense of judgmentalism in the courts of the heavens. Never aligned yourself with the evil one. Never aligned yourself with a, being put in a position to make continual accusations against a person who needs grace. Not another dose of judgmentalism. So now you've got, you've got Satan right here. And notice where he's positioned himself. He's trying to become the substitute for Messiah. He's trying to make himself the substitute for Jesus himself and to keep the temple in ruins and keep Messiah from coming. But the Messiah steps in here because in this vision, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. That's the second member of the Trinity. And Satan standing at his right hand. And here's his purpose now. To accuse him. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, not Joshua speaking now. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now, where are the temple ruins? In Jerusalem, what is the epicenter of conflict globally today? Jerusalem. The stakes are high here. And what God is saying is that I have chosen Jerusalem. There is a twofold rebuke at the start of verse 2. 
the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. There is something significant about adding that phrase, chosen Jerusalem. Satan wants to keep control of the chaos of Jerusalem and keep everything in disrepair. Rebuke you. Now at this point then, there's this incredible tension that's unfolding. We see the adversary and he's at work. He's the accuser. And you go on to read here that there's a question that's posed and it's a question that is soaked with grace. We need to get soaked with grace. The question. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Satan typically throughout the Bible is associated with fire. It's in the past tense, plucked, plucked out. So Satan is attempting through accusation to maintain a sense of destruction. What the Lord is doing is producing a sense of construction. The rebuilding of the temple, but also the reassurance now of this high priest who is to be the representative of this people, and the stakes are high in this courtroom. And God is saying, you know what? This one is a brand plucked from the fire. I've rescued him. Now, when Jesus died on that cross to save you from your sins and you put your faith and trust in the great rescuer, then you are able then to have similarly that sense of intercession. When you've got this individual who's making his case of accusation, is grace greater than sin or is sin greater than grace? These are the issues of the hour there in these opening verses. God is speaking dogmatically and he's looking at the temple ruins when he says here, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, which will be the basis for this high priest to experience grace. Rebuke you. Question. Is not this a brand, you see, plucked from the fire? There's a story about Martin Luther, if you have ever done or will be doing any kind of travel to track the various settings where God has done great works in history. And the setting is Wartburg Castle. And we're told that one day there came to Luther, as he was thinking about his sins, a vision of Satan. And Satan came with a great scroll, and on his scroll were all the sins of Martin Luther. And he began to detail them one by one, one after the other. And finally, Luther became more and more impatient. He was incredibly disturbed by his own sins. And finally, as Satan was getting near the end of it, he couldn't stand it anymore, and so he stood up and said, Yes, Satan, and far more besides. But right at the bottom of them all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
And we're told, and with that, he took up his ink, threw it at Satan in the vision. And today, if you were to go to the Wartburg Castle, you can see the black mark on the wall, which is supposed to be the place where the ink landed. A reminder of grace. Be able to distinguish religious accusation from true spiritual conviction. This is what's happening here. And the phony one, the masquerader himself, has positioned himself where? At the right hand of the sovereign one, trying to make himself a substitute. When in reality, Jesus Christ is the ultimate substitute. When he died for your sins. When he died for my sins. And now you're looking very carefully at what's unfolding here because you move from the sense of Jesus Christ, your defense attorney, involved in the defense towards the cleansing of this person who needs to be defended. Now Joshua was standing before the angel in verse 3. What I want you to notice is the wording. He's clothed with filthy garments. There's nothing pretty about this. The word filthy in the Hebrew means literally covered in excrement. No getting around it. So now what we've got here is an incredibly impure situation before the totally pure God. And something has got to be done. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Check out verse 4 carefully. The angel said to those, there is, there is a gathering of people and they are observing this clash. The angel said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Now, first of all, notice with me the divine initiative. This is not Joshua telling everybody to remove his clothing. Furthermore, this is not Joshua choosing to simply remove this clothing. This is all of God. And so there in verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Now, when you and I begin to look at that, we realize very carefully that what God is doing here is that he is demonstrating grace. Sure, Joshua the high priest is a sinner. So are we. And what we find here furthermore is that this accuser, as he begins to raise one argument after another and one accusation after the next, finds that this defense attorney, who you and I know as Jesus Christ, appeals to the sovereign first member of the Trinity as Jesus, second member of the Trinity, sovereign as he is, delivers this argument of grace. And it's as if the first member of the Trinity says, objection sustained. Because he can see the trajectory towards that finished temple that sets in place the opportunity for that finished work of this current defense attorney. Verse 
delivering grace at our point of need. There is going to be a a removal of the old clothing. And the removal of the old clothing is going to be tied and turned with the replacement of the new clothing. You and I need a cleansing. J. Edwin Orr was born in 1912. He was a professor of missions at Fuller Theological Seminary where he taught courses in the history of missions to career missionaries. Despite all the numerous awards and accomplishments in his life, Orr is probably going to be remembered best as author of a simple hymn based upon a text of the Scripture, the hymn, Cleanse Me. Written in 1936 during an intense movement of the Holy Spirit at an Easter gathering where a revival was breaking out in a city of New Zealand. The biographer tells us that sometime prior to this Easter campaign, an attitude of an unusual expectancy had been prevalent among the people. Prayer meetings spread throughout the city with fervency. Intercession led to widespread confession and reconciliation among believers. And great numbers of the unconverted professed faith in Jesus Christ. And as the revival news was spreading, Dr. Orr looked carefully at what was occurring and then began to write a song based upon Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there is any, if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And this song, Cleanse Me, was sung repeatedly throughout the gatherings, the religious, no, we'll call them revival gatherings, all throughout New Zealand and Australia at various points along the way. And this is what's happening here now. We've got a cleansing text on our hands because the evil one had saw that there's a threat for the temple to be rebuilt, which meant that there was the threat for Messiah to come in. And so he was trying to produce his accusation and make it stand. But grace is greater than sin. And who but Jesus now steps in as the defense attorney who will combine his defense with deliverance. And the objection sustained as Jesus then makes his point. And so the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. It doesn't say that, Joshua, due to your works, you have taken away your iniquity. Does it? No. This is by God. This is for God. Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. Look what comes next. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now, the high priest wore certain vestments into the temple to provide sacrifice. Do you recall a time when you were reading in the book of Genesis? We're in chapter 4, verse 20. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. In verse 21, you and I were then told, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. After they had fallen, after they had rebelled against God, God graciously then clothed them. They did not clothe themselves. God clothed them. We find ourselves vulnerable when we feel so undressed before God. And what we desperately need for God to do then is to address the sense of self-consciousness where there is accusation flying our way. And what we desperately need is one who is our deliverer to be our defender at this point. Make absolutely certain that you understand the grace of defense in the relationships that God has placed you in. Don't do the work of the evil one. And so to him, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you, not you will clothe yourself, with pure vestments. Now in verse 5, in verse 5, we're told, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Now the turban was worn by the high priest as he would go about in the temple And on that turban was the list of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what he's saying is that just as I am ministering to Joshua the high priest, you are the representative of Israel before me. And so now I want you to understand and I want them to understand that this grace is being administered and there is representation involved here in the courtroom of the heavens and they've got to understand likewise that they are declared righteous having put faith and trust in this case in the Messiah who is to come, who's your defense attorney and who's your deliverer. As you think about that award at this moment that has just been administered this month in the land where of Israel by the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, making absolutely certain that this one who had been the protector and the provider for the Jews would be properly honored. And now what we have to do is to find a way to honor the one who has properly protected you and protected me in the courtrooms of the heavens. And so they put on this clean turban, his head, clothed him. He didn't clothe himself, clothed him with garments. And notice what comes next. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's the second member of the Trinity. That's his title at this point. That's your Jesus. And he's standing by and providing a sense of presence for you, for me. David Livingston, 
January 14, 1856, felt much turmoil of spirit. But then I read that Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, teach all nations, and lo, I am with you. Always, not sometimes, even to the end of the world. And next to that text, Livingston wrote, It is the word of a gentleman. I'll take him at his word. Now you take him at his word. And so now when you find yourself so incredibly spiritually vulnerable, you go to the one who saves you by grace, not by your works. And when you feel so overly exposed, you realize that the one who clothed Adam and Eve is the one by grace, ministers to your needs, and has got you covered. And the angel of the Lord, the title in this case in the Older Testament for Messiah, standing by, and I am with you always. Always, he would say. But now out of this, there is a second act of work of grace here. Because secondly, by his grace, our Lord not only defends his people, cleansing us from sin, but furthermore, he delivers his people, sending us his Messiah. So now in verse 6, You find yourself positioned as you're pondering what's here. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. And when you found yourself under intense accusation from the evil one, what you need now is intense assurance from the Holy One. And the angel of the Lord, this is Jesus, solemnly assures Joshua. And what we need, all in the dynamics of relationships, is a sense of the richness of grace and the assurance that comes with the presence of God. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now he's talking just like Haggai. And just as the Babylonians viewed Nebuchadnezzar as the Lord of Host, the Lord of the armies, when the temple, via their efforts, was destroyed. Here now, you don't overlook the irony of this. He calls himself the Lord of hosts, so he's got the same capacity that Haggai spoke of for the reconstruction of that temple, and furthermore, the grace that is necessary that comes via that temple when Jesus Christ enters in and then dies for our sins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I'll counter all this, he's saying. And now he's got a statement to Joshua. If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall have rule. You shall rule my house. And of charge of where? My courts. And I will give, that's grace, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Now, what I want you to see at this point is that he is privileging. We can use that as a word. Joshua. And he's saying, due to my grace, not to your works, due to the fact that grace is greater than sin, not sin greater than grace, this is what I want to do for you. 
Now, in verse 7, God's house means simply his people. And as you look carefully here, there is a richness in what God is offering him. If you walk in my ways, now keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, the people of God. Have charge of my courts, which points to the sacrifices that leads and indicates and directs us to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And this is Jesus saying this. It's the angel of the Lord speaking. I will give you the right of access. And our minds leap forward to that point in time when the veil was rent in two, top to bottom, not bottom to top, because Jesus Christ was providing access to God through Christ's finished work. Growing up, our family, friends with the DeHaan family, it's tied with a radio Bible class. And I recall when Richard DeHaan was speaking of a conversation he had with a pastor by the name of Stuart Sylvester. And he and his wife drove to the airport near the Toronto International Airport on their way. And he writes, the sight of that busy terminal with its lights and planes and activity reminded Pastor Sylvester of a conversation he had had with an acquaintance who frequently flew his own plane in and out of that airport. And Pastor Sylvester asked him if he had encountered any problems taking off and landing in a small craft at an airport that was dominated by large jets. Listen to this. This applies to what we're reading. He said, my plane may be small, but I have the same rights, the same privileges, and listen now, the same access to that airport as anyone else, including those jets. And there you have it in verse 7. I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. You've got access. And astoundingly, it is the second member of the Trinity who is who is making this powerful statement to this man who has found that his, his wardrobe of excrement has been removed and replaced. Now he's clean. And he can enter into God's presence as can you if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. But now he wants to draw attention to this Messiah and his work. Hear now, O Joshua, and then he adds the high priest. You and your friends who sit before you, we have moved from standing now to sitting. There's a peace that is settled in. There's a sense now of assurance and refreshment which we ought to bring to fellow believers. There are, is a threefold description of this one who will be born in Bethlehem to die on Calvary that come leaping out of these verses that I want you to spot with me. For they are men who are a sign. And a sign is simply a directional post at this point, pointing towards the one who will enter into Jerusalem to die on Calvary, 
there are three significant titles that are found here pertaining to the one to be born in Bethlehem. I will bring my servant, he says, first of all, to you and to me. My servant. There will come a time in the New Testament days when Jesus Christ will say, I came not to be served, but to serve. He doesn't end there. And to give my life as a ransom for many. And one of the great titles in the Older Testament with regard to the Messiah was the servant. And particularly in Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. Not only is he described here as my servant, but furthermore, he is described as the branch. Now, if you've got any family members who are at this point this afternoon going to be putting ornaments on a branch of a Christmas tree, I want you to think of the way in which this particular branch is decorated. And why is Messiah spoken of as the branch? Think of the idea of a family tree. And he is the branch that flows out of that stump. For as Isaiah put it in a prior century in chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And who was the son of Jesse? David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And right when you think that that tree was cut down and can't produce a branch comes forth that you and I know as Jesus Christ from the line of David, and now the line of David is standing there in this court defending and delivering. He produces grace in our time of need when the accuser wants to simply pile on the accusations one after another. And then we are told in verse 9 this, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes. I will engrave the inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And Peter understood exactly what that was all about. Because not only is he described as the branch, and prior to that, my servant, but he is also called here the stone And as Peter would have been thinking very carefully with regard to Jesus Christ and the temple, as Joshua the high priest here is thinking about the temple and ruins and how the temple was restored eventually, there was Peter. And as Peter walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, processed with Jesus, he was able to say from the Scriptures, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And now Joshua's feeling, so I'm not going to be put to shame here. There's grace here. I put my faith and trust in the one who delivers the word. And lo and behold, in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9, I'll remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, And now he is linked Christmas Day to Good Friday. Are you doing that? When people ask, and why Christmas? Why did Jesus come? He came to die for our sins. 
He is now this cornerstone, and the temple activity will find its ultimate fulfillment in the one who would die. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That final day also pertaining to the second coming, not merely the first coming of Jesus Christ, because now you connect the first coming and his death to the second coming as well. When he returns for his people, and when you see come under his vine, lo and behold, you find yourself moving to John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And in that day, under his vine and under his fig tree, And along came Jesus, and he spots a man named Nathanael. And he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? In John chapter 1. And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And now what you've done, you've connected the dots once again. Your deliverer is your defender. And if Israel would stop and pause and reflect upon the one that they have just honored, this U.S. soldier who's just received Israel's righteous among the nations honor, there is one who deserves to have an ornament on his branch. The highest honor, our worship, as we glorify him as our deliverer who saved us from our sins. Let's stand together. You defend us and you deliver us. And there's somebody here today who needs that combination impact upon their lives. They need to be reminded that they are defended. And I pray that we as a congregation will be marked by a gracious defense. And that person who comes in knowing that they are sinful by nature and have not come to that point in time where they've put faith and trust in Jesus. May they realize that they need a deliverer who, once saved, will find that he is also their defender. May they put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. So thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you work. And thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to die for our sins. We give you the praise in Jesus' name.